I feel I need to quote Monty Python and say, and now for something completely different, because um, apologetics is different. Apologetics isn't always uh, technical, uh, conceptually, or vocabulary, but, but today it is. Uh, so I just want to say that although they are different, Apologetics has the same, the same purpose as preaching and the liturgy, and that is the proclamation of the gospel and the edifying of the saints. And so sometimes it does help to use technical vocabulary, but I'm not going to start out that way. Uh, this is actually a good illustration of the problem we have within a city of light pollution because if it were dark enough in here you could you could this is really a great picture off the internet I didn't take this picture of a starry night across a, a, a small lake looking at what is called the Milky Way which is going up into the corner there which is the center of the galaxy and uh, it's been said by more than one one person uh, perhaps the most universally awesome thing that any human being can do is uh, stand outside on a starry night and gaze up at the heavens. And I have done that. You have done that. And, of course, it's always most awesome if you do it outside a city. I'll just mention one time. Uh, we were hiking, not my wife and I, but friends and I long ago, long ago and far away, hiking in the Rocky Mountains, and we hiked across the Continental Divide, and, and we came down into this narrow valley. And there was, literally, it was like out of a postcard, a little stream running through the valley and a shallow lake, uh, stands of pine trees and a meadow with boulders in it. And so we came down into this valley, and we, we set up tents, and we ate our food, and the sun was going down, and, and I have this just incredibly distinct memory, even, yeah, 45 years later. It that, that was 45 years ago uh, this past summer. Um, and I'm sitting there by myself, watching the sun go down, and then a few stars come out. You know how it is if you're outside at night. And then a few more come out, and then hundreds, and then thousands. And, and then it looks like this only even, even better. Uh, this is, we're still at about 10,000 feet. It's a perfectly clear night. There's literally less atmosphere above you. And it was unbelievably awesome. And I grew up in a small rural town near the Atlantic coast. So I had seen starry nights away from light pollution in the city before. I used to walk down the beach and the Milky Way would be overhead running parallel and that was awesome. But this is the most spectacular starry night I had ever seen. And, and it, what, what was even more awesome is it wasn't dark. There was no moon. We, had, we didn't have any lights on. We didn't start a campfire. Uh, and, and you could, I almost thought I could read. I almost took a paperback book out of my backpack and wanted to see if I could read. Starlight is a real thing. And this is just amazing. I was not 
really a believer at the time, but if, if one had been standing next to me and had read Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. I've, I wouldn't have disagreed. But the problem is the imminent frame, which I spoke about in the first lesson, this social construct around us that is solely dwells on what is imminent, not as what transcendent, says God isn't really real. All that exists is the material world, says, well, no, they don't really declare the glory of God. They're just hot balls of gas. They might warm this planet, but that's a coincidence too. They sprang from nothing or perhaps from the eternal multiverse, and they are just mute manifestations of chance and necessity. They are the inexorable and meaningless outcomes of the laws of nature. They might be full of sound and fury at the radio end of the spectrum, but they signify nothing. And this is what the eminent frame will tell us. They don't praise God and, oh, they might be pretty, but it is not a transcendent experience. But apologetics will say, well, now, wait a minute, maybe David and all the latter-day Davids who see the hand of God in a starry sky are on to something. So let me explain this. So apologetics uh, becomes doxology. I was reading some of the doxological statements in the liturgy, the one at the presentation. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And perhaps more germane, Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. And apologetics becomes an aid in saying, yes, I can say this. And I can be assured that it is real and true. And today I'm going to talk about some technical things, uh, both the vocabulary and the concepts, which I'll try and explain them as best they can, but I'll frankly admit they're philosophical and, and scientific and sometimes they are hard to understand but they are a reply to that imminent frame that says these don't really glorify God they're coincidence, chance and natural law and they're just there so we want to ask the question well how does what is there those in, incredibly awesome stars how does the existence of this universe show that God is there? And the first technical thing I have to talk about is contingency, necessity, and the principle of sufficient reason. Now, this is in more detail in chapter 4 of the book, so I'm going to just quickly sketch it in, and I'm going to try and leave a lot of time at the end for questions. So, things are contingent. So they're dependent on other things for being the way they are and for just being. You're contingent, I'm contingent, she's contingent, he's contingent. Wouldn't you like to be contingent too? Anything that could have been 
or might still be otherwise than what it is, including whether it could have existed or not, is contingent. And literally, and I mean literally, literally, not figuratively, literally, literally everything in the physical universe is contingent. Things that are contingent must have a sufficient reason, a cause or explanation for why they are the way they are, including why they even exist. And I use the example in the book of biological birth. Why are you even here? Well, your parents. Why are they here? They're et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Parents, parents, going back to Adam. Well, where did Adam come from? That's a good question. Darwinian evolution will say the final reason for why we're here is the combination of chemicals under chance and necessity and life spontaneously sprang forth. That explanation has its own issues, but even that's not a final explanation. That is not sufficient reason. Where did the chemicals come from? Where did this planet come from? Where did those laws come from? Ultimately, where did the universe come from? So a sufficient reason, according to G.W. Leibniz, 17th, 18th century philosopher, who probably put it in its most uh, popular form, he said, we hold that no fact can ever be true or existent, no statement correct, unless there is a sufficient reason why things are as they are and not otherwise. Not surprisingly, he also wrote a, the, first, the first defense of God's justice called a theodicy, because this also hits home when we suffer. Why did things have to be this way? Why were they not otherwise? But that's a different story. I'm coming back to the universe right now. So the universe as a whole is contingent. It didn't have to be here. Every component of the universe didn't have to be here or be this way. It just is the complete collection of all the contingent things that exist. I might be getting my figures right, but if we boil it down to uh, elementary <coughs> particles, there are, well, I think, protons, 1 times 10 to the 123rd uh, protons in the universe, which is a number so long, the number itself, if you just write it out, would you know stretch across the street and down the block. So every one of those protons is contingent, and the things that they make up are contingent, and the whole universe together is contingent. So it needs a sufficient reason, a cause, or an explanation of its existence. Why is it here, and why is it the way it is? This reason or cause must be necessary. This is one of those complex philosophical concepts. Necessary in the philosophical thing doesn't just mean needed. It means it is not contingent. It cannot not exist. The best example of a necessary being or existence is God's existence. And if you think about it, that will start to expand your mind, that God cannot not exist. He is just there, has always been, and will evermore shall be.
It must be necessary. It cannot exist, and it must exist outside the collection and chain of contingent things, reasons, and causes. If it didn't, if it didn't exist outside all that, it would just be another contingent thing for which there would have to be a sufficient reason for why it is. Uh, This actually connects to the doctrine of the Trinity. And I'm not going to make all those connections, but I'm just going to say we can describe the Trinity. We cannot explain it fully, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that it is beyond our rationality. The Trinity and God are the final explanation for which there are no further terms of explanation. This is the, the ground of being, to borrow a term from uh, Paul Tillich, a theologian who I disagree with almost everything else he said, but that one phrase he had was apt. So the reason or cause must be necessary. It cannot not exist. If it could have not been then it itself was contingent and would require a further explanation. I did say this got to be technical, and it does. So we could say that either the universe or its cause must exist necessarily and eternally. There are those who want to refer to the universe as a brute fact. Atheists or materials say, well, the universe is just there. It doesn't need an explanation. They might not say it this way, but they imply that it is necessary as well as eternal. And there is this point that for anything to exist at all, something must exist eternally. Just think about that. For anything to exist at all, something must exist eternally. I've always said it's like this. Nothing is a very stable situation. So stable that if you have nothing, you will forever and for always have nothing, and there will be no forever and always because there won't be any time or space. So if ever there was nothing, nothing would ever come to be. So there's a principle that from nothing, nothing comes, and it's so basic and self-evident and, of course, it gets a Latin expression in, phil- in philosophy, and that's ex nihilo nihil fit. From nothing, nothing comes. This should not be confused with the Christian doctrine, Judeo-Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo. That does not mean that you, the universe sprang all by itself from nothing. It simply means God did not use pre-existing materials. So ex nihilo nihil fit. From nothing, nothing comes. What exists eternally must also exist necessarily. It must exist. It cannot not exist because if it didn't, there would be nothing, and nothing is very stable. Just, just if there's nothing, you have nothing. God's existence is necessary and eternal. On the, on the other hand, materialists and atheists said, well, no, the universe is necessary and eternal. And apologetics is going to say, no, there are good reasons to believe that this is not the case for the universe, that it is, in fact, contingent. It needs an explanation, and that <coughs> explanation is a cause of the universe, and that cause is God. 
So the cosmological argument has a long history going back to Plato and Aristotle and even back beyond there. All versions of the cosmological argument are based on the principle of sufficient reason. And typically the reason is presented as a cause or a reason for why the universe is the way it is and for why it even exists. And so I'm going to go over one version of this, which is, uh, in, in some ways it's the most recent, and in some ways it's very old. It, the, the word kalam is an is a Arabic word meaning speech. This argument goes back to a 12th century Muslim philosopher, but it's been most lately developed in the 20th century by William Lane Craig and others. And it's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. And it's deceptively very simple. This is actually the simple part. So whatever begins to exist has a cause of its existence. That makes sense. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause of its existence. This is, this is a logical syllogism. It is valid. Now, valid doesn't mean it's true. Valid syllogism means that the conclusion follows very naturally and specifically from the premises so that if the premises, number one and number two, are true, then number three must be true. The conclusion must be true. So the question is, are those premises true? The first, what ever begins to exist has a cause of its existence is self-evidently true. If the term self-evident sounds familiar, it's because it's in the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson used the phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that whatever begins to exist has a cause of its existence. No, he didn't say that. He said, we have certain rights given to us by God. But it's the same idea. That things just don't pop into existence for no reason is self-evident. To believe otherwise is to give up philosophy and engage in magical thinking. And small children do engage in magical thinking. And magical thinking is, is a, a, a fun fictional idea like warp drive and, and transporting and a galaxy populated by strange and wonderful aliens. We can tell stories about these things. But it also know that it's not reality. Literally, nothing can go faster than the speed of light. I hope you know that the Star Trek warp drive is a fiction, just in case you were wondering. So things cannot pop into existence from absolutely nothing. There is, though, actually a, an atheist cosmologist by the name of Lawrence Krauss, whom I feel I have to mention, because he literally wrote... He's a quantum cosmologist. A universe from nothing. The problem with his explanation here is he has a profound misunderstanding of the word nothing. Nothing to him means a quantum field. And here is where I'm just going to give a short description and I'm not really going to go into a lot of detail. Uh, if, if you want to discuss quantum mechanics and quantum cosmology, we'll have to set off aside a, a few other weeks sometime. Um, and he says that the universe could have sprang from nothing, just like so-called virtual particles, should have sprung, could have sprung from a fluctuation in a quantum field. 
A quantum field, this is where it gets really technical, is technically a field of zero energy. It averages out to zero energy. And so he equates this with nothing. Here's the problem with this. He, I'll, I'll quote a, a fellow theoretical astrophysicist. And I don't know if uh, Luke Barnes, who's an astrophysicist at Western Sydney University, actually knows Lawrence Krauss, but he commented on his views. He said, fundamental physics is, always has been, always will be about the basic stuff of the universe and how it is arranged, <coughs> interacts and rearranges. There is nothing deeper. Thus, there can be no answer within science as to where that stuff came from, why it is that type of stuff and why it obeys laws, why those laws or why there is anything at all. In other words, he is saying that within science, there is no sufficient reason for why the material universe exists the way it is. All scientific explanations stop at the basic stuff. Krauss's argument fails. Particles can appear from no particles, but not from nothing. He's talking about a fluctuation in a quantum field again. The underlying field is always there. A state with zero energy is not nothing. There must first be a thing before we can measure its energy, even if the number we get is zero. A physical state with no space or time, however strange, is still not, therefore, nothing. <coughs> A universe with laws that vary from place to place and time to time is clearly not the same as one with no laws at all. It just makes the laws more complicated. Krauss makes an unjustified leap from something from not these five things, that is matter, particles, space, time, and laws, to something from nothing. And even atheist physicists who aren't vested in this particular view understand that Krauss doesn't understand nothing. And I'm not being grammatically incorrect there. <laughs> so as a matter of fact, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. And I, I feel like singing right now, but I'll, I'll stop and I'll keep myself from doing that. So whatever begins to exist has a cause of its existence is just common sense backed up by good philosophy, good astrophysics, and good quantum mechanics. Nothing comes from nothing. So if something didn't exist, and then it begins to exist, there is a cause. So the second one, what about the second premise? The universe began to exist. This is more controversial, and most atheists who don't want to follow this argument to its logical conclusion will try and dismiss this as Krauss did, but they won't say it sprang from nothing, they'll say it's eternal. However, the problem with eternality, as well as its conceptual difficulties, is that it implies an infinite regress of causes, and you can't get an infinite causal regress. You thought that first part was more complicated, this gets even more complicated. So if the universe as it is now, right in this moment, no, this moment, <coughs> No, this moment. That is the final effect. And this final effect is caused by the 
complete state of the universe just prior to this moment. This moment. This moment. So every entire state of the universe is in effect causing the next entire state of the universe. The position of every and disposition of every atom and every bit of energy in the universe. So it kind of goes like this. So you have a final effect, proceeding cause, etc., etc. And it goes back and 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 back. But it can't infinitely regress. At some point, back in the way back, there has to be what is called the final cause. Now, those of you who know your philosophy realize that I'm borrowing here from Thomas's, uh, Thomas Aquinas's, his Thomistic cosmological argument, and I'm, I'm going to stop right there and just get back to this. So the problem with infinities, let me go back and mention this. The problem with an infinite regress is it involves an actually infinite number of things, an actually infinite number of moments of time and states of the universe going back. And, and the problem with infinity is it's not actually a number. And it, it's really not that hard to understand. If you think it's a number, we'll start counting to infinity and tell me when you get there. Infinity is a useful mathematical and conceptual concept. It's useful in theology, although in the context it does not mean the same thing it means in mathematics and even cosmology. So I won't digress there. You can never get to an actually infinite number of things of the material universe, whether grains of sand, atoms, or moments of time. And again, if you don't believe me, start counting. One second, two seconds. You will never get to infinity. So the problem here is a beginningless series of events stretching into the past entails an actually infinite number of things, specifically an infinite number of causes, or you could think of them as preceding moments of time. And therefore, the series of events in time cannot be actually infinite. And I'll just, if you have a question about that, make a note and I'll get back to you at the end. So there's that first part of evidence for the truth of the first premise, the impossibility of an infinite regress. But even if we didn't have that, we have scientific evidence. And there are two things. The first is the second law of thermodynamics, and the second is the Big Bang Theory. And... Uh, I don't mean the TV show. I mean the actual Big Bang Theory about where the universe came from. But if you, you, know, if you watch the Big Bang Theory, and, and I did, uh, they actually did bounce back and forth from actual cosmology and astrophysics sometimes. Sometimes. Mostly it wasn't about that. So uh, very quickly, and, and this, is, this is a general description. This is not the technical scientific description of the second law of thermodynamics, but it, it's true. So in a closed system, I use, I use the example in the book of a perfectly insulated cooler, which is theoretical. No such thing exists. If it did, you could really make a lot of money. In a closed system where no energy leaves and no further energy comes in, 
The level of usable energy always decreases and the level of disorder, that's entropy, always increases. Energy runs downhill. Those of us who are getting to a certain age already know this. And it's just the case. Everything eventually runs down, breaks down, or burns out, including the universe. I always use the example when I taught this uh, before, uh, that if you come into a room and it has, say it has fluorescent lights and, and the lights are on, how do you know they haven't been on eternally? Usually it wasn't a rhetorical question. I'd demand an answer. But I'll just say this. Because we know the nature of fluorescent bulbs is that they eventually burn out. Uh, even LEDs burn out. They're not eternal. They're very long-lasting. But they eventually burn out. So if you come into a room, you know that these lights haven't been on eternally because eventually lights burn out. So this is, this is a paradox. Actually, it's a reductio ad absurdum. So the second law implies that if the universe were eternal, it would have already experienced what's called heat death. I describe heat death in more detail uh, in the book, but it's like this. Eventually, all the stars are going to burn out. Eventually, all the planets, I mean all of them everywhere in every galaxy in the universe, and, and eventually all the planets will break apart, and then all this matter will dissipate because the universe is expanding, but we'll get to that when we get to the Big Bang. So the universe is expanding, And so eventually all this matter is going to be broken apart into its constituent atoms and and be still expanding and spreading apart. The universe is literally getting bigger. And eventually those atoms are going to break down. And eventually the hardest little pea nutshell thing in the universe, which is the proton, which is very persistent, but there really is such a thing as proton decay. Eventually every proton and every quark will break down until the universe is nothing but a low level of energy hovering slightly above absolute zero, which is minus 273 degrees Kelvin, and I forget what it is in Fahrenheit. It's the point at which all atomic and molecular motion ceases. So that level of energy getting even lower spread throughout inconceivably vast darkness, and that will be the entire universe. We only have a few trillion years left. So if the, and a trillion years is a lot of years, but it's not an infinite number of years, and therefore it's not eternity. Uh, This is is the conclusion of people who are not confessing Christians that the universe cannot have been eternal in the past because if it were, it would have burned out by now. These are, in, these are, at the level of materiality and physical law, inviable. And if you didn't believe in miracles, you might be depressed that we've only got a trillion years left. The other bit of evidence or collection of evidence is the Big Bang Theory. So the standard Big Bang Theory states that the universe began a finite time ago, 13.8 billion years from a state of infinite density called the singularity. And yes, I do believe this theory actually and accurately describes the earliest state of the universe. I don't believe the universe is 6,000 years old, and I don't believe the Bible says so. And I think the scientific evidence is compelling. There is a great deal of evidence from astronomy and cosmology supporting the Big Bang Theory. 
The universe is expanding. The leftover radiation from the Big Bang has been discovered. They've actually calculated uh, the average rate of acceleration of the universe. It's called the Hubble constant. And there's a whole host of supporting evidences and observations that, that support the standard Big Bang theory. The problem of this, if you want to believe in an eternal universe, is that the standard Big Bang theory comes with a beginning before which there is no scientific explanation, as Luke Barnes said. There is only the fact that, as far as we know from a physical standpoint, there was nothing, and then there was something. And where did the something come from? Where did the initial singularity and the Big Bang of the universe actually come from? But the Big Bang itself implies that there is a beginning to the universe. So that the universe began to exist is well attested by philosophical evidence and scientific evidence. And for those of you who might know something about cosmology, that are, there are all kinds of different theories supposedly trying to compete with or add to the standard Big Bang theory. It's just that so far none of them are successful, except in the fact that they sell lots of books. So Lawrence Krauss sold a lot of books, arguing for co uh, quantum cosmology, saying that the universe could have come from nothing, which everybody who knew anything about philosophy, even if they were an atheist, knew that he profoundly misunderstood nothing. And that was not a grammatical <laughs> mistake. So whatever begins to exist has a cause of its existence. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause of its existence, which is God. Okay, but what kind of God? <clears throat> this is what is called natural theology, sometimes it's called general revelation. And this is a real thing. Some theologians disagree, but of course I would disagree with their disagreement. Uh, the Apostle Paul, you wouldn't call this a developed natural theology, but you, you could say it grounds and points to natural theology and general revelation. In Romans chapter 1, 18 and 20, he says... The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. How is it plain to them? Paul writes, Because God made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Now, that's a wonderful paradox that is still there in the Greek. God's invisible qualities have been seen. How? Being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Now, some use this first to say that general revelation has only a condemnatory effect, that its sole purpose is to bring men under judgment. Um, and it does have that effect. The argument, whether it has anything further to do, press people, point people, urge people to God, is a, is a theological question that I, I won't go into right now. But one could also place this under the category of the law. 
And so Luther says the law always accuses, and the starry night, if you're an atheist, is going to accuse you of not believing in God. So the God shown by the cosmological argument must be outside space and time. That is transcendent. Because if it was inside space and time, it would be, God would be one of those contingent things for which an explanation was necessary. Must be non-material. That follows from being outside space, time, and matter. And so we can call non-material things spirit. We don't have to define what spirit is other than that it is not matter. But it, it exists. Powerful beyond measure. If you create a universe, you have all the power of the universe and then more. So you are omnipotent. And the last one, which requires a little bit of connecting to God, is capable of a rational decision. So therefore, this God must be personal. Why is that? It's because if a cause is impersonal, then if a cause is impersonal, if it's present, its effect will always be there. And so, again, paradoxically, if God or the cause of the universe were impersonal, the universe itself would be eternal, but it's not. So at some point, and I'll have to say in time in air quotes, because before the universe there was no time. So at some point in time, God made the rational decision to create a universe. And this strongly implies that God is personal. And so, in a roundabout way, we come back to this. The heavens really do declare the glory of God, and the skies really do proclaim the work of His hands, and you can take that to heart, and we can sing that to God and declare it in the liturgy and praise God. And so apologetics is, in effect, the handmaiden of doxology and a servant of the word. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah, George. Um, it's personal? Um, not necessarily. Uh, so do, does the order of the universe point to God being personal? It certainly points to God being a God of order. Uh, what I thought you were getting at was called, it's called the argument from dysteleology. Uh, stuff happens and much of it is bad. And so does, does this imply that God does not exist? No, and the answer for that is not ad hoc. But it is the fact that we do live in a fallen world and most of the suffering we experience really is due to sin. So I'm not sure... I mean, that's a conclusion. Does it infer that? Does it imply that? Uh, I, I would say the order of the universe not per se points to God's personality because we can think of order coming about through strictly chance and necessity. Uh, in other words, through, through the laws of nature and the random combination of atoms. But it's, it's a point worth arguing. Anybody have any other questions? Yeah, Sarah? So Sarah is pointing out that uh, patterns and order indicate intelligence. And I'm going to paraphrase somebody in our political past. It depends on what the meaning of the word order is. So there are some forms of order and design and pattern which imply an intelligence. So this is where the discussion comes in. 
Uh, but there are some kinds that don't. And uh, I'll leave that discussion for next week. I'm glad you've introduced next week's lesson because next week's lesson is about the design argument and how design in the universe shows that God is there. Because we have to be really careful when you're talking. A pretty pattern, <coughs> even a beautiful pattern, does not necessarily and always imply intelligence. It depends on the level of information, another technical term, which you can reasonably infer is in that design. And so I'm actually going to go with the idea that things that show intention and purpose rather than necessarily a visual or even auditory patterns show intelligence. But that's where we're going next week. Yes, Robbie. Infinite. You're right. And as a matter of fact, the reason why it points to the beginning is pretty much what you're saying. So, so Robbie said, isn't the idea of a singularity of infinite density an oxymoron? It's an absurdity. It's a conceptual statement which can have no actualization in the material world. Um, I don't want to teach science. Well, actually, I wouldn't mind teaching science. I just don't want to teach it right now. But nothing with any volume, any length, width, or height can actually be infinite in density. Why? Because it can get denser because it can get smaller. Uh, right. And so a point of infinite density is just a clever way of saying nothing. There is no such actual physical entity as a point of infinite density. Again, that's in chapter 4 if you want the details on that. And if you don't want the details, you can just skim over that part. Okay. Um, Right, and this, you know, I went back and re-researched things, but let's just say I'm not a cosmologist, so I don't study it every day. So they actually have adjusted, in my lifetime, adjusted this from 20 billion to 15 billion to 13.7 to 13.77 billion years ago. And I'm just rounding up to 13.8. So, and then if you know the song from the Big Bang Theory, nearly 14 billion years ago, you know, the Big Bang. Now, the Big Bang is not the, the atheist explanation for how the universe began. It, it requires somebody to actually start the Big Bang because, as Robbie pointed out, when you're talking about an alleged point of infinite density, which was the point at which the universe started, you're talking, at least metaphorically, about nothing. So, yeah, and I, I believe they're correct, but they may readjust that, but they haven't in a while. Yes, Sarah. Um, there are, well, there are some who uh, want to believe it's eternal. Look, can people believe things in their head that are mutually contradictory? Yes, there are some honest atheists who say, look, if you're going to go with the standard Big Bang theory, and as far as we know, there's nothing else we can go with right now. You're going to have to say that there's a beginning to the universe. There are, now, there are right now two attempts to get around that. One is the idea that somehow there was a pre-existing quantum field from which, and I don't even understand all the physics of this, but I do understand some of it, from which a, a virtual particle sprang and attained actuality, and this actually became the universe. And the problem with that is... Um, I can't well describe it, but a quantum field is a well-described actual physical thing of the universe. It's not nothing. So the question is, well, then where did the quantum field come from? 
and you're back to it's a contingent thing. It requires an explanation. Who made the quantum field? Where did the quantum field? The other attempt, which doesn't really solve it either, is the so-called multi-universe theory. The idea that we're a bud or a branch off of a pre-existing universe in a nearly infinite or infinite series. Of course, you get into the impossibility of anything physically infinite. Infinite number of universes of which we happen to be one manifestation. There may actually be, you know, millions of universes around here right now that we don't know about or can't see or can't detect. Now, I'm saying this as though it could actually be true when I think it's... I don't think it's true, and that, that, that's the thing, is this isn't science. And serious scientists will say multiverse theory is not science because there is literally no empirical way to verify this. There is no... no how do you detect another universe? I, you can do it in science fiction, but you can't do it in reality. Well, that's actually the case, and of course that leads into psychological studies of why atheists are atheists. Most atheists don't have genuine intellectual problems. They were atheists forever, even the ones I've met and the ones I've read and studied about. And the thing is, people think Richard Dawkins is a great intellect, and he might be in his field, but uh, Michael Ruse, who is a philosopher of science and a biologist too, once said of Richard Dawkins, he may be embarrassed to be an atheist because his, both his philosophy and his science outside his field of evolutionary studies is seriously lacking and even honest atheists will say so. So, and uh, anyway, yes, Will. Oh, well, the universe is 13.8 billion years old. That doesn't mean the human race is. Uh, and, and the planet, I think there's good geological evidence to say, well, by the, this point, I'm not repeating the questions because I'm sure whatever, uh, the, Nick will cut that off anyway. So I'm just answering questions as best I can. Uh, and I think there's good geological evidence that um, the uh, planet is 4.5 billion years old um, and that life may be 3.8 billion years old. Um, depending on what you call man, and I am not calling man a lot of things that uh, anthropological, paleoanthropologist says man. Um, some say, oh, go, man goes back a, a million years. No, at best, uh, what would in evolutionary thinking be called ancestors of man go back a million years. Um, I think the hardest evidence right now, and I'm not even sure that that much is correct, that what we would call Homo sapiens sapiens, us, goes back maybe 30,000 years at most, and I'm not even absolutely sure of that. I, I will admit that's, that's not my field. Well, neither is cosmology. I've just studied it more, just so you know. Uh, I believe there was an historical Adam and Eve, and I believe they historically sinned. Now, I believe there's metaphors, illustrations, and figurative language in, in the Genesis story, but I think it rests on a foundation of actuality and reality. So there was a first sin. Um, uh, I don't buy, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a theological evolutionist. Um, I'm, I believe in, in what's called intelligent design. I, I believe that God, in punctuated fashion, intervened in the natural process, or life would not be here, and we would not be here either. So, All right, well, uh, next week we'll talk about something equally complicated but different.